We return this morning to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. Saving grace and serving graces. Hebrews 12, 28, 29 is all about saving grace and serving graces. I see this morning that Al Miller's daughter, Grace, is here. She'll think I prepared this sermon for her. But I prepared it for you. And it is an interesting thing to think about how that saving grace and serving graces relate to our faith in Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12 and verse 28. Hebrews 12, 28. Wherefore we, receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved or cannot be shaken, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. Father, we pray that this morning we would be able to enter in once again to the former logic presented to us in this text and come to an understanding concerning the unique depiction of thy holy character in the terms of consuming fire. There is no doubt a blessing in it. There is no doubt a warning in that. And it is our prayer this morning that you would give us both insight and welcome of heart concerning the great revelation of thy holy character in the terms of a consuming fire. And for that, we will thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. For by grace ye are saved through faith. We hold dear this profound phrase in Scripture that speaks so directly to our personal salvation. It is by God's grace alone that you have been saved, and that through faith in Jesus Christ. The basis of your salvation is grace alone, and the means of that salvation is faith alone. Thus, the Reformers rightly spoke of sola gratia and sola fide. By grace alone, through faith alone, saved, saved, grace and faith come together in a beautiful, dynamic, God-generated way. And as a result, we can speak confidently of salvation. 
And now we return one last time to Hebrews 12 that we might speak to the profound relationship of grace and faith to Christian service. The grace and faith relative to Christian service. It is likely that you already cherish the relationship of grace, faith, and salvation. But now we want to think this morning about the relationship of God's grace and our faith to serving God acceptably. The unshakable kingdom of God is being received, says verse 28, by the children of God. The realities of that kingdom are already and not yet. Grace is perpetually needed, and grace is wonderfully available to us on earth in consequence of our great high priest, even now seated at the right hand of God the Father. We have come to Mount Zion. We have come to the one mediator, the Lord Jesus, whose own shed blood cries out unto God on our behalf for justification and godly service. The grace that we need for service is wonderfully available to us as a consequence of our great high priest seated at the right hand of God the Father. Grace and salvation is secured by faith. The child of God now exercises faith in the river of grace flowing from above, out of which he or she may serve God acceptably. The word serve, as found in verse 28, speaks of priestly service, as was true in the Old Testament under Aaron, and is true, spiritually speaking, of us under the Lord Jesus. A theologian's approach to Hebrews 12:28 underscores the cherished truth of the believer's priesthood. As you've often heard me say, the reason that I don't wear a funny collar uh, is because of the fact is that we believe that every child of God that names the name of Christ and knows the Lord's salvation is indeed a believer priest. And as a believer priest has direct access to God in prayer through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so we have a, a, a word here that speaks of our, our contemporary functionality as priests under the banner of the grace of God that is initiated by faith in God as it relates to service that is reverent and fearful, rightly fearful, godly fearful in a way that pleases God under the new covenant. By grace through enduring faith, we serve acceptably as evidenced by these two qualities of reverence for God and godliness. Failure to serve God by grace through faith is deterred by the reminder 
that God is, as he always was, a consuming fire. This serious depiction of God, true to the presentation of the whole, draws upon the contrast of the old covenant under the law and the new covenant in the Lord. The old covenant, which acknowledges the characteristic of God as a consuming fire, uniquely foreshadows the new covenant in which God remains, as he always was, a consuming fire. The thought that is pushed by the modern critic and by contemporary evangelicalism, that there's a difference between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament, is absolutely bogus. God is as he was and shall be. God does not change. The word for that is immutability. God was a consuming fire under the law. God is a consuming fire under grace. Sinai was the place of God's revelation of God as a consuming fire. And Zion is the place where we are reminded that God has not changed. And on that basis, you and I are indeed duly warned not to trifle with God. God is undiminished. God is undomesticated. You cannot control God. He controls all things. Our common understanding of how physical fire can devour people, places, and things is used to help us in the scripture to think correctly about God. God is indeed called a devouring or a consuming fire. And I trust that you are aware that God's presence among the Jewish nation of old during the period of the Exodus, was physically manifest in a pillar of cloud and fire. Thereafter, at Sinai, God's presence was physically manifest in dark clouds, a loud voice, and fire. We said last week that it was scary. And that even Moses shook in the presence of God when receiving the law. Moses shook out of godly fear and reverence. Let's now press this thread line as it develops in the record of the Old Testament so that we can make the New Testament point in reference at verse 29 where it says, for our God is a consuming fire. The logic is, we're receiving a kingdom. That kingdom cannot be shaken. Therefore, we must have, we must possess, we must operate in the realm of grace and faith, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, 
for God hasn't changed. God remains a consuming fire. And this is one of those phraseologies in the New Testament that you just cannot get your brain around unless you look at its referencing in the Old Testament. So in the moments we have remaining, we're going to spend as much time in the Old Testament, namely Deuteronomy and Leviticus, we're going to have spend, spend as much time in the Old Testament as we are here in the New Testament. But number one, I want you to see that first and foremost, that God's depiction, his characterization in the Bible as a devouring fire, as a consuming fire, underscored the truth to the Jewish nation of God's desire and affection for them. Please turn with me to Deuteronomy and chapter 4. Deuteronomy and chapter 4. God as a consuming fire is understood in the giving of the law as being an expression of his desire and affection for his own people. Now it takes a little thought to get there. Hang in there with me as we go. Deuteronomy chapter 4, let me first read 15 to 20. Here is God at Sinai, and you have an account of God at Sinai in which he addresses the issues of idolatry. Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for ye saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure, the likeness of any male or female, the likeness of any beast that is on earth, the likeness of any winged fowl that flieth in the air, the likeness of anything that creepeth on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the waters beneath the earth. Unless thou lift up thine eyes unto heaven, and when thou seest the sun and the moon and the stars, even the host of the heaven, shouldest be driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord thy God hath divided unto all nations under the whole heaven. But the Lord hath taken you and brought you forth out of the iron furnace, even out of Egypt, to be unto him a people of inheritance, as ye are this day. Now in those verses, Moses reminds the Jewish nation that when they saw and heard from Yahweh at Sinai, they did not see any form or shape. They did not see any similitude of God. They heard God's voice, but what they saw was cloud and fire. They knew that God spoke to them out of the midst of the fire. What God spoke to them was, of course, the covenant of the law. But in the process of God speaking to them, God does not represent himself. He does not manifest himself in any particular form or shape. And on that basis, you have an explanation of that which we know to be a part of the law, 
You shall not create any images, worship any other images or idols in representation to God. God said, when I revealed myself to you, you did not see the form of a man. You did not see the form of a woman. You did not see the form of a fish. You did not see the form of a, of a bull. You did not see the form of a goat. You didn't see any similitude. You didn't see any form. You didn't see an image. You heard a loud voice. You saw the cloud. You saw the fire. And that was the way God says, I presented myself to you when I indeed approached you as a special people called out of the furnace, the iron furnace of Egypt, to be my people, to be the people of my inheritance. Jump to verse 23. Take heed unto yourselves, lest ye forget the covenant of your Lord, the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make a graven image or a likeness of anything which the Lord thy God hath forbidden thee. For the Lord thy God is a consuming fire, even a jealous God. When thou shalt beget children and children's children, and ye shall have remained long in the land, and shall corrupt yourselves, and make a graven image, or the likeness of anything, and shall do evil in the sight of the Lord thy God, to provoke him to anger. Here Moses is reminding the children of Israel that they have been made special to God, that God had delivered them out of the iron furnace of Egypt, so that they would be his inheritance. And God says to Israel, now you be careful about not making any graven images because you want to, wouldn't want to make God angry towards you, for he is jealous towards you, and you should not forget what you saw and heard at Sinai and proceed to make an image of God in some concocted form or shape as you have been forbidden as a deterrent to the graven images, Moses declared that Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, is a devouring fire. Righteously jealous of his covenant people's love and loyalty. We would not tolerate their, he would not tolerate their relational trifling. He tells them that he is a consuming fire of a God who loves them with an everlasting love and has chosen them for his inheritance and demands of them love and loyalty in return. Now you may be asking, how does all of that translate into divine desire and affection for us? And the answer is, covenant relationships, like that which is known in the bonds of marriage, sanctifies jealousy. Jealousy is an evil thing unless it is indeed a righteous thing. Sinful jealousy and envy are forbidden us. 
But righteous jealousy exists in the bonds of covenant. The relationship God desires with people involves a loving commitment in relationship, not to be violated by other like relationships. God ordained marriage as reflective of his relational desire and appointment between a man and a woman. The bonds of marriage reflect the honor and the jealousy of the love of God for his people. Think of how our society is undermining the truth of the Bible with their flippant attitude towards God's covenant in marriage. Marital jealousy is righteous jealousy and leads us to the truth that we are loved with an everlasting love and led by grace that love to know. And our love for God is to be first and foremost in return. The depiction of God as a consuming fire, Hebrews 12, 29, underscored his desire and affection for his people Israel as referenced in the Old Testament. And the reference to God as a consuming fire in Hebrews 12 reminds the new covenant community of faith that God is just as relationally jealous of our love and loyalty as ever. God is jealous of our love and loyalty as he was jealous of Israel's love and loyalty under the law. The covenant in the Lord is different and far better than the covenant under the law. But God is the same. He is immutable. His relational desire and affection towards us is absolutely clear in the gift of his Son, Jesus Christ. There's not a person here that doesn't know this phrase. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God is jealous for our love and loyalty in return. And therefore, we can preach saved by grace. And we can also preach serving by God's graces. As the flow of grace continues to flow out of Mount Zion towards us, that we might serve God acceptably with due reverence and godly fear. The reference to a consuming fire has to do with God's affection, exclusive affection for his people, his affection for his own. Now, the second depiction that we see in the Old Testament that plays into our understanding of Hebrews 12, 29, as God is a consuming fire, has to do 
with God's acceptance of obedient sacrifice. And for that, we turn back a little further in the Old Testament to Leviticus chapter 9 and read the historical event of Leviticus 9, 22 to 24. On the day of initiation of tabernacle service, of priestly service, we read in verse 22, And Aaron lifted up his hand toward the people and blessed them, and came down from offering of the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of the congregation and came out and blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the people. And there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat, which when all the people saw, they shouted and fell on their faces. In that moment of account, you not only have the historical, but you have the historic. This event demonstrated God's acceptance by fire, consuming the sacrifices on the day of inauguration of priestly service. Likewise, Hebrews 12, 28 tells us of the new covenant priestly service that is acceptable or accepted by God. Trust and obey were elements of the priestly response that met with consuming fire and acceptance on the Old Testament altar. And trust and obey is the way of service before God today. By grace, we trust and obey. We exercise faith and go on to obey God in right-minded priestly service. His is a consuming love. Love him back. His is a consuming acceptance. That is the only way to serve the Lord, to serve the Lord in the way that he accepts. Israel knew on the day of inauguration that their service and sacrifice of the Lord was acceptable by the manifestation of consuming fire. And likewise, we are reminded that God is still a consuming fire, that he judges by fire the works and the worship that we present to him. And on that basis, we are admonished to serve God acceptably by means of trust and obey. It was an advance to the people. It was an acceptance of God for sacrificial service. God is depicted as a consuming fire to tell you something about the love of God for you. God is depicted as a consuming fire to tell you something about the service of God so that you can serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. 
And then thirdly, one more Old Testament reference, Deuteronomy and chapter 9. We want to pick up on the third prong of emphasis that informs our understanding of Hebrews 12, 29. Our God is a consuming fire. And in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 1, we read, Hear, O Israel, thou art to pass over Jordan this day to go in to possess nations greater and mightier than thyself, cities great and fenced up to heaven, a people great and tall, the children of the Anakims, whom thou knowest, and of whom thou hast heard say, Who can stand before the children of Anak? Understand therefore this day that the Lord thy God is he which goeth over before thee as a consuming fire, he shall destroy them, and he shall bring them down before thy face. So shalt thou drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord hath said unto thee. These verses tell us that God would act to abolish the enemies that stood in the way of his advancing people. God would act to abolish the enemies that stood in the way of his advancing people. It is in this vein that the truth is declared in the Old Testament storyline that the battle belongs to the Lord. It is this in this same sense of thought and understanding that the psalmist sings, He is my defense, I shall not be moved. Or, He is my defense, I shall not be shaken. We're receiving Hebrews 12, 28, a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that cannot be moved. And if we serve God acceptably, then we can know that as our defense, we shall not be shaken. Psalm 2 tells us that God the Father says to God the Son, Ask of me, and I will give thee the heathen for thine inheritance. So the God we serve has promised us in Christ that we shall reign with him and share in his inheritance of all things. Our righteous response to this new covenant relationship is to trust and obey. Everything in the life of faith is a response to God's revelation in the Lord. God's Love is an all-consuming love for us. God's acceptance is an all-consuming 
acceptance of our service when rightly performed. And God's protection of us is all-consuming. We dare not fear the enemy for fearing God. Fear God, not man, is the mantra again and again and again in the pages of Scripture. Back to Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, 28, 29. The logic of the 12th chapter runs from the Old Testament reality under the law to the New Testament guarantee in the Lord. God did not trifle with those that violated his communication under the law. And the logic of Hebrews 12 is, how could we think that God would not deal severely with anyone who trifles with his holy son? God dealt with those that trifled with the law. Surely, he will deal with those that trifle with his son. The word out of the law came by Moses. The word out of Zion came by Jesus. As the recipients of grace, the saving grace of God, we are to perpetually receive grace, the more by faith for serving. Knowing God as a consuming fire assures us that he will always act to purify the valuable and to destroy the vain. God has promised to destroy every enemy that stands in the way of our advance, including our own perpetuation of sinfulness. He is a destructive or consuming fire protecting our righteous self in the Lord. Now, when you first read that God is a devouring fiery, a fire, uh, it's awful hard to say, well, let's be happy about that. But then when you realize that that characteristic of God is presented in the Old Testament connects directly to his exclusive affection for his people and his exclusive acceptance of their righteous service, and his exclusive abolition of all enemies that would prevent their absolute advance to the place of his promise. Then I say to you, in Christ Jesus our Lord, thank God that he is a consuming fire who loves us, who accepts our service, and clears the way before us unto righteousness, and that forever and ever. And God's people say, Amen. You know, it's interesting because we sing songs like, Our God is a mighty God. <laughs> and truly he is. But our God is likewise a devouring fire. And I don't know any songs about that. I've never heard any songs written about that. I think it would take too many, too many verses, too many stanzas to uh, develop the thought that our God is a devouring fire. Yet the truth 
of God's righteous consumption is used in the Old Testament and the New Testament to commend the life of trust and obey. We have no reason to expect that God would deal differently with those that refuse the communication out of heaven concerning the Lord than he did with those that refused the communication coming out of Sinai. The same voice that shook the earthly mountain will shake all shakable things. So says verse 28, and you and I are receiving an unshakable kingdom so that only righteousness and peace and joy remain. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. Why? Well, faith and hope are for now. Faith, hope, and love are for now. But faith and hope are particularly for now. But love between God and his people, that is forever. And it is forever because of one person whose one action on the cross has served as the sole basis of our salvation. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Saving grace and serving graces through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, help us then to be a rightly responsive people and to serve you today acceptably with evidences of our trust and obedience. For we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen.